0: Hi, this is Kevin Klinkenberg with the Messy City Podcast. Happy today to have my friend, another Kevin, you know, (laughs) gotta watch out. There's a, there's a lot of Kevins there. We we may have to talk later about this thing I just read about called Kevinism that uh, is in Germany, but uh, my friend Kevin Shepard from uh, uh, Verdunity, is that, did I say that right?
1: You you did, you did. And uh, you're joining uh, us uh, from
0: Texas today?
1: Yeah, I am, uh, I'm in Dallas. Terrific,
0: terrific. Uh, well, there's there's a couple of things that I really want to get into uh, as, as we get through uh, the uh, the podcast today. Um, I, I know you all. Uh, Kevin's an engineer, and he's done a lot of interesting work in Texas and uh, other states that we would probably consider like politically red. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there, and uh, and also the the notion of being a person that has a podcast and a blog, but also runs a consulting firm. There's some some interesting stuff to talk about there. But before (laughs) we do that, uh, Kevin, I'd like to make sure people know who you are and, you know, curious what your background is. I I know from talking to you that you had a, you know, an interesting professional background and all. Why don't you talk about, you know, where you're from and how how you got started in the uh, engineering and consulting business?
1: Yeah. So, um, it's good to be on with you, Kevin. It's, it's always, uh, as someone who hosts a podcast, it's always fun to, uh, be on somebody else's. So appreciate the invite, but, um, yeah, I I started out my degree as a, as a civil engineer, um, where you're taught that growth and expansion is good. And, um, the suburban experiment that we've been doing over the last 50, 60 years is, uh, the, the model that a lot of civil engineers and traffic engineers transportation engineers are taught what we're not taught in school is how we're going to pay for stuff on the on the back end and um, so I, I did you know basic civil engineering for about 15 16 years um, around the last recession 2008 2009 I got offered the opportunity to serve as national director of my former firm's, uh, community planning practice. And so I went from a world of engineering into planning and sustainability and placemaking. And and that's really where my eyes got opened up of, uh, just the social fiscal environmental impacts of the world that we build. And so that, uh, that led to us starting Verdunity, uh, April, 2011. So, um hmm. it's been 12 years which is crazy. Yeah. Uh interesting time to start something so we,
0: too.
1: Yeah, I know, right? Uh but it was just I was learning so many things working nationally and I would come back to Dallas and think what what are we doing differently in Texas that's going to keep us from ending up like a Memphis or a Shreveport um Detroit uh you know and and realize not much we're we're actually doing things bigger and better and faster uh or so we we think. And so that, that was the idea behind starting our firm is we wanted to help communities in Texas, um, think differently about how we're developing so that we can be ultimately be more sustainable. And so, um, we started out doing mostly engineering. We're more of a planning, uh, probably, probably do more 75% planning, 25% site development engineering now. Um, but definitely feel like we've, uh, evolved as, as a company. And I've still continuing to evolve professionally too about how I think about planning and urban design and zoning and, uh, and civil engineering as well. So it's been a a fun journey.
0: So, and I know that you took a lot of inspiration from the strong towns movement and, you Mm -hmm. know, our friend Chuck Marone So talk about maybe how that impacted your thinking. And it was, was that sort of like a key factor in getting you to think about going out on your own?
1: yeah you know I I 2009 2010 when I was starting to kind of have this realization that that no matter what city I went to it's big city, small city, rural urban suburban, very few of them had the money that they needed to pay for infrastructure that that was kind of the aha thing for me and so I started googling around. I remember I was in my study one night and I came across Chuck's blog. Way back before Strong Towns was anything like what it is today, um, and I started reading it and was like, "Man, this this is what I'm thinking." So I actually reached out to Chuck, um, asked him if he'd jump on the call with me, and and we did. We ended up talking for a good hour and a half, two hours, uh, and so yeah, that that uh, definitely impacted our thinking. Um, was part of our early years as a, as a firm we partnered and did a lot with Chuck and Strongtown still continue to. Um, But um, yeah, Chuck, Chuck's inspired me personally, but, but that work and seeing the, the evolution of Strongtowns in terms of um, just advocacy and education, you know, we're starting to hear more cities um, use that language and look for consultants like ours that uh, that want to help them put those things into practice. So yeah, that, Chuck, Chuck especially, but Strong Towns too, um, have, have been a huge influence.
0: So then, when you when you all decided to go out and, and do your own thing and 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 look at forming a, a consulting co- practice, kind of breaking away from more of the corporate side, how did you uh, how did you decide like what services to offer? And I'm I'm kind of curious. You know, one of the things that I found when I had my old firm was the services that we in, intended to offer to start with ended up changing pretty dramatically. And we ended up doing a whole bunch of other different <laughs> things. And what's that been like for you guys?
1: Oh, totally, totally, man. Like our North star has always been to help communities become more sustainable. Um, you know, we, we want to help communities be more socially inclusive and equitable, uh, more affordable, more resilient. Um, but when you really get into kind of under the hood of how do you do that, Um, you know, I mentioned early on, we, we did start as an engineering firm and we were trying to help more places do what we thought were the right projects the right way. Right. Um, but in Texas, it was like just a brick wall of, uh, yeah, we, that, that might've worked in Seattle, but we don't want that here. Or that might've worked in Kansas city. Um, you know, and it was very much, we're doing our thing in Texas. We don't, we don't need anything else. Um, and, and so just kind of year to year thinking about the balance of, we had to get work to pay the bills. Um, and man, there, there's some projects we did in the early years that just like, ugh, uh, you know, I, and definitely if I go back to my old firm and some of the work that I did, it's even, even scarier to think about, but, um, we kind of went through a period where we, we just started thinking about how, how can we get more communities, to want to do projects differently. And so that led us into more education and ultimately more of like the, the comp plan work. We, we do a lot of comprehensive planning work and strategic planning work now. Um, but we do it a, through a very different, just a through the fiscal sustainability lens. So I felt like the, the best way that we could still educate people, both inside a city and a, across a community about these ideas, whether it's strong towns or incrementalism, uh, doing it as part of a comp plan is a great way to get a lot of people inside city hall and elected officials and across the community all to the table. Um, and it's been really cool the last couple of years to see how doing the math and talking about the, the value of incremental development and, um, pulling in uh, some of things like the value per acre analysis that we'll that we'll do, and a lot of partnership with Monty Anderson um, to show how you can still build great places with local developers um, it's It's been fun to uh, to just see communities think differently about how they're gonna grow and develop. so that that's just you know over our twelve years we've shifted from mostly engineering to kind of half and half and now, like I mentioned more on the planning and engagement and education side. Um, there's still, there's still engineering work that we do with site development work with small developers. We'll still do some, uh, some transportation work with cities, uh, some green infrastructure work with cities. Uh, and then we, we do a lot of education and workshops to just kind of stand alone, uh, whether it's with a region or with a council or, or things like that, that, um, has kind of been a third part of our services, yeah. I guess, that, um, so, you know, a, a pay, a paid way to educate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. You never know where it's going to take you. Have you found that there are certain kinds of communities, uh, that have been more interested and receptive to the message than others? I mean, are you working more with smaller communities or how's that been?
1: You know, um, that's a, we do, we do work a lot of work with small communities. We got a couple of folks on our team that are really passionate about rural towns. Um, and so that, that's been part of it. Uh, but there's also been some larger, uh, some larger communities that have reached out to us, have, have heard what we do and our approach and, and have asked us to come in. Uh, I think more than the size, it's probably more about just the stage of growth that they're in, Um, there's the ones that are, um, mostly built out and kind of losing population and maybe shrinking or uh, just trying to reinvent themselves. That's, uh, those are places that we love to work in. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, it's small places that are just on the verge of really rapid growth and they've got leadership that wants to grow differently. Um, it's the ones in the middle that we have a lot of here in North Texas, that, uh, they've grown a little bit in the suburban pattern. They've kind of, they've experienced some of the, the revenue bump, uh, and growth from that. And so they're, they're just kind of doubling down on it and they, they really love that model. And we've had quite a few of that kind of community that's reached out to us that we've just said, no, you know, we, we can't, we're going to beat our heads against the wall trying to help you, but you're you're not going to get it. Yeah,
0: they're in that. They're still in that uh, sugar high mode a little bit with, from yep. the, from the growth <laughs> that comes that way. Uh, yeah. Ha- have there been a couple of communities that stand out for you that that you feel like you know like the the work has been most uh, successful and, or where you've been able to advance that discussion a lot more?
1: Yeah, you know, a, a lot of um, a lot of folks will associate us with uh, fate. Texas, they're a small community out here by where I live. And, uh, Michael and Justin, uh, those guys, I've, I've known them for years at this point. Um, I still remember the first time over there, went over there to introduce myself to, to Michael, the city manager. Uh, he was brand new and, um, you know, I live in the area. And so I, I took him a copy of the Strong Towns book and said, Hey man, here's a book, give it a read. Would love to help you out. And that's kind of how our, our relationship started with them. Uh, so we've done a lot of work with them over the years, just educating council, planning commission, uh, you know, some fiscal analysis and, and consulting work. Uh, Taylor, Taylor, Texas is another one. They're a, a small community down in central Texas um, that's one of those small but very fast growing. And their, their leadership totally understands uh, these concepts from the, the mayor to the city manager, the assistant city manager. Uh, so we, uh, we worked on their comprehensive plan last year, um, that it got, um, just found out recently it got an award for the, I think APA's small town, uh, small and rural town category. Mm-hmm. I think it was. Um, but that, that was one where they, they really embraced the, um, you know, the fiscal message and how can they grow in a way that's going to keep them affordable, both for residents and for the city, um, long-term they've, they've been a lot of fun to work with. Um, I think, uh, you know, on the design on the, the incremental development side, um, I don't know if you've had Monty Anderson yep. on your podcast. Mm-hmm. You have. Okay. Um, so Monty's here in Dallas with us. And so we, we do a lot of his, uh, site civil work. Um, we'll help him with some of the entitlement, um, things on, on some of his projects. But so there's several cities that he's working in that, um, Duncanville, DeSoto, Midlothian, um, Dallas, uh, and th- those have been rewarding too. Um, just to, to be able and uh, to help city staff kind of understand how they need to think differently about their processes to allow people like, like Monty, the, the space they need to re- do really great stuff. That's, <laughs> uh, very needed. So, um, and then the, the other thing with Monty, that's probably worth mentioning is on several of our, uh, Comprehensive planning projects. We we've brought him in for workshops in the middle of the process to uh, just to help kind of explore some opportunities in downtown, do some of the quick back of the napkin pro formas on on some different sites, and that's for the locals to kind of see the numbers pencil out of how that you know how those projects can help transform an area or cultivate the local economy that's been kind of a reinforcing um, thing that when you zoom out to the comp plan level or a policy land use level or zoning, seeing some of that proof is what's helped push some people kind of over the top in terms of, of maybe thinking differently about the policy changes than what they were before. So, and there's several cities that we've done that with. So, you know, and, and now the, we have been focused mostly in Texas, um, but we're starting to get calls from other parts of the country to do if it's just our land use fiscal analysis or um, our comp plans over overall. So, um, so yeah, it's um, it's getting easier to do the work than it was 10 years ago. Um, and we're starting to see more cities and city leaders that are looking for this kind of uh, this kind of approach. So the the marketing side mm-hmm. of the consulting firm, I guess, is getting easier.
0: for For those who, you know, maybe aren't as familiar, why don't you talk a little bit about the fiscal analysis side of things and what what actually that is and what what's important about it for sure. communities.
1: Well, uh, yeah. So if I go back to the issue that I saw and still see uh, in so many places is most cities don't have the money. They need to uh, maintain existing infrastructure, let alone building more that a lot of them are. And so we, whether it's a standalone project or part of a, a larger planning effort, we like to go in and, and help a city understand what their current cost of doing business is. So what what um, you know, what are they bringing in in terms of, of revenue, property tax and sales tax? What is their current budget look like in terms of the cost to serve their overall city, but also different types of of development. And then uh, the land use fiscal analysis part of it specifically is, you know, geo accounting is what Joe and the urban three guys call it. Um, But it's mapping the revenues and costs for uh, at the parcel level so that we can see um, what property tax revenue or sales tax revenue is, is coming in for that property, what the the cost and the infrastructure, the service costs and infrastructure costs are for each parcel, um, and then you can look at that citywide and start to understand which, uh, which patterns, whether it's land use or zoning or neighborhoods, um, are bringing in more revenue than they cost to serve and which ones uh, cost more to serve um then then they're they're bringing in and then the other level that we'll do is is add to that if the city had the money that they really needed to take care of their infrastructure streets especially um and we'll add that on and so you can really start to see the patterns that hold their value even when you load more costs in um versus the ones that really go into the red um you know, like a lot of the suburban patterns do when you add in the the true cost of infrastructure that, you know, cities just aren't, um, the simple way to say it is they haven't been saving what they need to, to replace the streets when they reach the end of their life cycle. And so that, that massive amount of reconstruction money tends to come due right about the same time that a city's growth phase slows down. And so that, that's where you see a lot of cities get upside down. And with our planning work, we try to reverse that, try to get out in front of it and say, how can you grow in a way that will align your development with what residents can pay? So keeping it affordable for residents and then that the city can afford to serve, um, at a reasonable tax rate as well.
0: Right. So, you know, I think one of the, seems to me that one of the challenges with all this kind of work, is, um, you know, in a lot of municipalities, the uh, the people that you work with uh, one year may not be the same people two or three years down the road. Uh, you know, and sometimes there's this lack of continuity, whether it's a a staff thing or an elected official uh, side of things. I don't know if you've <laughs> in- encountered that much. And how do you, nah, how do you deal never, with that? No, never,
1: man. <laughs> uh, well, uh, cities are messy, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, To use a phrase. Uh, you know, th- that is something we run into everywhere. You've got, uh, you got elected official cycles, right? The, you got new folks on council that are coming in every two or four years. Um, you've got these days staff are moving around like crazy. Um, at least in, you know, in our area, I mean, they're, they're bouncing around between cities or between a private consultant firm and back to a city. Um, and what it, i think what what we're learning is that you you need a you need a broader ongoing conversation in cities that um that transcends one you know any one council or any single staff person that um, it's just like on the private side when you when you look at your business plan and your vision or your strategic plan or your, or your core values you have certain things that that lead and guide your organization that different people will plug out, plug in and out of over time, but you're still kind of going the same direction. Cities need that too. And I I think the most productive and effective cities we've seen have had that overall vision, that overall identity as a community that, um, you know, as different council members come in and out or different projects happen, Um, the community understands who they are and and how different individual projects fit into that bigger, that bigger journey. Um, I just did a a podcast last month with uh, Bill Fulton, who wrote a a book called Place and Prosperity. He was, um, he was in Ventura, California for a while. And just, we, we talked quite a bit about this, this idea of, uh, city leaders needing to understand that people are going to move in and out of the community. Businesses are going to move in and out of a community, but there needs to be leadership at the top of an organization at, at the top of a city that, that looks out for the longer term interests of a city and, and balances those with what's happening, uh, you know, day to day. So just an ongoing conversation in cities about the vision and the values and, what projects are going to bring money in today, but the liabilities they're going to add in the future. Um, and especially for older places that that already have so much in the ground, how, you know, how are those projects you're doing today going to help you close that resource gap and affordability gaps um, intentionally over the next 10 years?
0: So one thing, you know, thinking about that, uh, do you have much luck in your work uh, connecting these principles and the ideas with, you know when I uh, knew when you're doing comp plans, you're engaging a lot of different people, uh, and so it's not just like um, you know city government staff or anything or elected officials, but uh, ideally people across sections to the community. Do you do you find much luck in the business community in a lot of these towns to to identify with these concepts and especially the fiscal analysis at all, or do they do they jump on that?
1: Yeah, um, most people jump on the fiscal analysis because what what we like to say is fiscal sustainability is that common language that everybody can connect with. So you might talk to an average citizen and they might not understand land use or density or road diets or missing middle housing. Um, But when you can put, you know, and and, I mean, I've, I've been there before in in thinking back through different communities where I've lived and comp plan stuff happens. And I just like, eh, um, why does it matter? You know, why does it matter to me? But, but when you can put it in terms of the the value of somebody's home or, um, and keeping it affordable or providing housing, that's more affordable. Um, the, you know, the property tax rate that they're paying and the the services that they're getting for that. Um, or if you can put it in terms of a business uh, or a developer and say, how can you contribute to this community in a way that's going to actually be more you know, more affordable or productive for you, whether it's as a tenant or a developer. Um, that it's that common language that kind of brings everybody together. And so we've seen, uh, you know, on the resident side, we, we've seen residents that started a process that were like, heck no, I don't want density. Um, and then they start to understand that, well, if uh, if having a little density in their community could help keep their their housing more affordable and keep their tax rate, um, reasonable, um, they'll shift and they'll say, yeah, I can, I'll support it. And it becomes more about where does it go and what does it look like? Um, then heck no, I don't want it. Um, you know, and on the developer side, um, we, we try to, we, with the plant stuff, we, we focus on the high end of the values and the fiscal sustainability and affordability. Uh, and then in the implementation, we try to work, um, much more incrementally and collaboratively, and locally led, and so trying to tap into the local developers, the local property owners, the residents, all the nonprofits and, and groups in a community, and get them to understand they're a, they're a big part of implementation. Uh, is uh, is part of it, and when you start to when you start to ask them, Hey, we want input on a plan or a vision, but also challenge them and say, we don't just want your ideas. We we actually want you to contribute to executing whatever comes out of this thing. Um, you get some different kind of feedback, but you also get a a lot of, um, implementers that will come out and and start raising their hand that, that, Hey, we want to contribute. And so the private development community, especially really understands this out, this idea of value per acre, and, um, building more, you know, a more compact footprint, narrower streets. Um, and so we're, we're kind of opening up that a little bit to where maybe cities zoning and transportation design standards, especially have kept them from building what they really want. Now, now we're giving them a new language to come in and kind of pitch why their stuff, uh, brings value and helps the community. Yeah.
0: It's, um, and I can see all that, uh, I I think it's important to kind of hit that cross-section. I mean, one of the reasons I ask is, you know, we've been having this conversation in Kansas City now going on several years that uh, was really initiated by, um, you know, our friend Dennis Strait, who uh, uh, works at a firm, used to be called Gould Evans, now it's called Mm Multi-Studio. And uh, he he really kicked off uh, a series, a speaker series and and everything here several years ago called Making a Great City, and it was really – built off of a lot of the strong town principles and uh, had, you know, a lot of the usual guests that we all see uh, uh, as part of the (laughs) roadshow. It's always kind of led to an interesting, you know, question in my mind, which is, you know, how did we, how did we kind of end up in this place we are now versus maybe what would have happened 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And, you know, I've had this kind of long running conversation with another architect buddy of mine that, it's fascinating how in the like the history of city planning in, in a lot of American cities, many of the great city plans that we identify with and think about, you know, like the, the Burnham Plan in Chicago, uh, I would mm-hmm. even throw in the Parks and Boulevards Plan here in Kansas City and probably many, many similar efforts all over the country, they were really initiated by uh, the business community and uh, really civic-minded people in those places. Uh, and then it was later when we developed kind of the administrative apparatus for city planning that we felt like we've kind of like outsourced <laughs> all of this to city government staff. Yeah. And we we have almost like this attitude, well, that's your problem now, uh, instead of, you know, local yeah. locally interested people taking ownership uh, of these and then carrying that forward regardless of who is in city government at the time.
1: That's a great point. And, um, we just had a conversation internally about that a a week or two ago of, um, you know, there, there are a lot of really smart and talented people in communities and, um, we've, we've gotten so siloed with how we do things that, you know, we think our city planning department, um, is just needs to lead, some of these things, or as a consultant, you know, we, we feel like, Oh, we're the experts. We need to lead this. And really what we need to get back to and what, what our goal as a firm is is to try to just be facilitators and collaborate, you know, collaborators. And we can bring in best practices or ideas that have worked in different places, but the people there in that community are always going to be the ones that, that know it the best and um, you know, know what's going to keep them there in terms of just retaining the people and businesses that you have, um, but also knowing kind of where new development can happen. So just getting at this collaborative implementation idea of, um, how, you know, how can you just tap into all of that community capital is what we call it. Um, you know, just time, talent, and treasure. There, there, There's people that have time they can contribute. There's people that will write checks for the projects that they believe in. Um, and so, how can you identify all of those people and get them connected, working together towards those those shared goals, and having city leaders uh, and city staff that that understand that, um, and then just how do you navigate the the more detailed stuff of who pays for who pays for what, and what kind of rules do they have to follow, and uh, but but just getting back to being a little more flexible and iterative and you know just trying things and instead of just trying to plan and have everything be be so perfect yeah um you know we'll say making meaningful progress right now with what you have uh and there's you just look at some of the best projects and best places and they're they're built incrementally by the people that are there Um, it's not big plans or big huge infrastructure projects that get us there yeah
0: so You know, you know, me, I like to also cut to like the very tangible, practical side of things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious about, you know, in a number of the communities where you've had some success with the message and you're working on comp plans Mm -hmm. and other things that get adopted. What are, what are some of the immediate, more tangible takeaways that you're seeing communities do to, to help uh, be more resilient or more focused on these principles? Uh,
1: You know, um, I used to go back and forth with Chuck a little bit uh, about just some of the the steps that he, you know, the first step he would always say is just stop doing, you know, stop building more. <laughs> and just realistically, most cities are not going to stop doing what they're doing. But when you can show that, that you can, um, you continue to grow jobs and get that sales tax bump, but do it through incremental small development instead of the big the big things that so many economic development folks want to chase. That's definitely been one. Um, you know, it's you can cultivate that local economy with a bunch of smaller businesses with the people that are there instead of trying to recruit somebody from the outside. so that that's been something that a lot of economic development groups have really um, just leaned into and they just have not thought about it. I can't, I can't even say how many ED folks we've talked to that we present this incremental model and they're just like, I've never thought about that. (laughs) That's, that's one, um, getting, just getting cities to think about how, how many more people they can add in infill just into their existing service area, you know, just vacant lots that you're filling in or just with accessory dwelling units. Again, it's, it just seems so obvious when you you know when we talk about it every day but but when you can start to show a community just how much capacity they have to add people in different types of housing without building another foot of street or water or sewer again it's just one of those things people will just say I hadn't thought about that um, and so it just becomes a matter of you know how intense do you get yeah um, parking, uh, you know, the showing the comparisons of a big a big box site versus a downtown or a suburban uh, suburban fast food place compared to a main street business, the, those start to illuminate parking minimums um, and start to to open up discussions there. Same thing for stormwater management, regional detention, um, using open space in a way that manages stormwater, but also serves as amenities. Um, you know so it's the, the fiscal message and, and just helping people understand how much stuff costs to serve and how behind our cities are. Um, it really does open up some of these things that that we've talked for years about being needed of missing middle housing or parking or um, you know better um, natural resource stewardship and management. So just general things that we that we see over and over and over with the different communities that come out of the process. Once you get people to realize that we're, we're building cities that we can't afford to live in and maintain. Yeah. So you, you you either have to start charging more in taxes and things get less affordable for more people, uh, or you have to start changing what we're doing. Yeah.
0: And, And those are never, never popular choices to, you know, try to illustrate for people, you know, especially when you start talking about, you know, if you don't make these changes, your taxes might have to go up to pay for whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. But
1: but at least it, you know, it gives that language to start to navigate those trade offs of, you know, if you want lower density and all that, that's great, but you're going to have to pay more.
0: Yeah. So that kind of leads me to talk about like the political side of things, which I think is always interesting. And I think a lot of times in our world, we don't want to talk about the political aspect, but uh, it, it's, you know, it's real and it, it, it's fascinating how, uh, in, in the world that we work in with, um, certainly part of the Strong Towns message and, and planning a lot of the innovation and projects that have been done over the years have been, you know, I think very stereotypically in what we call politically blue places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and you are in Texas and I mean, Texas is not a monolith, <laughs> Uh, but it's certainly mo- much more red politically. Uh, and uh, and yet, you know, many of the things that you're talking about, when I hear you talk about them, we talk about, you know, fiscal sustainability, we're talking about, you know, keeping tax rates reasonable, you know, yep. a, a number of things that you would think would resonate with an audience in a politically red uh, part of the world. Has that been your experience or what? what's the, is that an aspect at all of, of the work that you've had to undertake?
1: So yeah, I mean that's a it's a great point, and it kind of goes back to when we were trying to in the early years trying to do better projects and couldn't get people to change. Um, we had to find a way to help explain why we felt these different these different types of projects were needed, and that that fiscal message um, is what we we got to, and what we've continued to refine, and it and it does work with the more conservative. Uh, folks, not not everybody, um, but it's 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 interesting when you put the the real numbers in front of elected officials that like to say we're fiscal conservatives, we're fiscally responsible, and and you have the conversation in a community in a way that the the residents can see that that their city has a resource gap. We, we have streets that we thought we had the money to pay for, but we don't. Um, and, and so we need to make some changes to continue to provide good services at, a, at an affordable cost. And then from the elected official side, they, they, then the next time they run, they, they can't, they can't say we're, we're fiscally responsible and then turn around and support things that, that, make that problem worse so it's um you know it's helping with with that it's also helping a lot in terms of uh, affordable housing a lot a lot of cities that we work with think that larger lots are the the way to you to be fiscally sustainable um but when you can show the affordability issues with that um, again, just tying everything back through the money. Everybody understands that language, and underneath that, the the things that are best socially, um, environmentally, all tend to come out of that too. So we just we lead with the fiscal message, but some of the you know the green infrastructure uh, things, the missing middle housing, um, multimodal transportation, road diets, bike ped, all of all of those things come out of this and and are also more fiscally responsible
0: yeah it's it's a weird <laughs> it's a weird time we live in in a lot of ways because oh yeah you know there's a lot of these things that we talk about in this world that um i, I think have broad appeal uh, across the entire political spectrum um, but we live in such a you know an era with extreme culture wars that it's like if one aspect if one tribe decides that they like something, then the other tribe has to decide that they oppose it uh, regardless uh, of those, the qualities of whatever it Mm -hmm. has. You know, I, I also live in a political red state. Um, We have great cities and towns all over and, and uh, I would love for this message to resonate more, but it, it seems like it's a real challenge when it, when it's perceived as coming, you know, from people, whether they're, whether they're part of the other side of the aisle or not. But what, if the perception is that, or if it's like big city people coming to tell us what to do, it feels like it's a real hurdle to get over, to even get people to try to listen, you know, be open to the message to begin with.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's, this has helped with a lot of the small towns that that we've worked with too, that maybe, um, you know, they're, they're just struggling to keep people or struggling to attract businesses. And you, you just, Um, it's, I mean, every community is different, but getting people to just kind of just think a little bit bigger than their daily, their daily lives and think about what, what really matters to quality of life and, um, affordability for, I think a really interesting thing. And we're, we're both Gen X, we're both Kevins and we're both Gen (laughs) Xers. So, um. But we're in an interesting place with generations where some of the boomers, they, they'll kind of share some of the values that, um, more red, traditional, traditionally red values, but they really care about their kids and their grandkids. And so this, this idea of how are we building places that are going to be affordable and sustainable for their kids and grandkids is a way to get, to connect with them too. So it's, I think the, the tough thing is trying to connect with a lot of people at a broad level is hard, but when you can reach them individually and you can, you know, you can talk with a a grandma about her grandkids, or you can talk with a suburban mom that puts her kid in the back of the suburban and drives them all over town for the play dates, Mm -hmm. you know, with the, with the (laughs) pre-approved friends, um, you know, or, or how, how people are speeding through a neighborhood and explaining how narrowing the street can slow the cars down when you can get them one-on-one. We have ways to communicate the benefits, um, you know, of, of different approaches and, and they'll start to understand it, but it, it's hard with just how busy, how busy everybody is and just how so many people are just consumed with today. And mm-hmm. what have you done? You know, what have you done for me lately or what are you doing for you know, for me to tomorrow. And that's why so much of this falls on the councils, the city managers that are going to be in these communities longer, longer term to just kind of, you've got to, you got to help people see that you're building cities for the long, the long haul. You're not just building them for, you know, the next, the next five years. So it's tough.
0: So I also want to ask you a, a Texas question. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody uh, we're, we're all aware Texas is just booming uh, as a state, um, people moving there from, you know, not just California, but all over the country, uh, yeah. and has been for a number of years, obviously. Uh, what, you know, what's what's happening, you know, especially the last few years that you see that might be different? Uh, is there anything, you know, people from outside of Texas who aren't as familiar with it, things that might surprise people about what you see working in cities and towns all over the state?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh you know, I, I I've said for years that the Texas miracle is ultimately gonna blow up. Um we just keep you we, we have a low tax environment. We have um in, in a lot of places you've got very high quality of life, especially for families with, with kids, um at and housing is still uh affordable relative to across the country. Um, and we do see a lot of people moving here from both coasts. Um, but you know, they're coming here for the affordability. Mm-hmm. They can, they can sell their home, right, and come here and buy one and buy two others that they can, <laughs> they can rent out. So, an explosion in the rental market is is one thing that we're that we're seeing that, and uh, watching how different communities are addressing that is has been interesting. Um, the infrastructure thing, though. Is is really starting to stick uh, as well because we have more uh, definitely our, our large metros Dallas Fort Worth Austin Houston they've struggled with the how to maintain infrastructure for a long time but now you have a lot of the first ring um, suburbs and the second ring suburbs that are that went through their growth uh, their growth phase in the sixties seventies eighties that are now there they're like holy crap how are we gonna how are we going to fix all this stuff? And you can start to use Texas examples to show how people moved from Dallas to the first ring community, to the second ring community. Uh, and, and so that the strong towns message is really starting to show up here in Texas, whereas 10 or 20 years ago, it wasn't yet. So we always had to use examples from other places to show what's coming now we're starting to see it here and when people start to experience themselves then you know they they start to lean in and start to look for solutions a little bit more um, the other thing is on the affordability side ha- the housing costs are skyrocketing and so i've i've compared texas and california a lot and said you know texas today is california 20 30 years ago Um, if we don't build more housing of different types, if we don't build more compact places, housing is going to continue to go up. The infrastructure is going to cost more. And so we're just, all of those things are starting to show up. Mm -hmm. And so what, um, what we're seeing kind of at the political level is this battle between local leaders and the state leaders where the, the state officials are still trying to push that Texas model low, you know, low, low taxes. Um, we're open for business, you know, give all the incentives to come here, but the, the local cities are struggling to provide that housing to keep up, you know, and, and to make their budgets pencil to, to give everything away for free. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's still a a great place for folks to, um, to come, but we are, we are starting to, it's our turn to start to tackle this whole, how do you, how do you maintain places that were built 30 years by develop 30 years ago by developers?
0: Do you feel, uh, optimistic uh, about that conversation and the ability to, to face up to sort of the the cost relative to the, the, the pattern of growth that, that is so common?
1: I, I, um, it's a tough one. I get asked this a, a lot with as many cities as, the, as that we work with um, inside Texas, but also other states. It it can be kind of doom and gloom feeling sometimes when you just I mean, we see cities that need one billion, 1. 1.3 billion, 800 million just to maintain current streets. Um, but I do see more initiative at the local level of of wanting to change zoning and infrastructure standards to build, uh, to build more resilient places. Um, I'm not, I'm not as optimistic about the state level right now until, uh, until maybe we see some changes cause they, um, they're trying to get it at affordability, uh, but they're just going about it the the wrong way. Um, we've got a couple of bills going through that they're talking about allowing ADUs, um, lowering the the minimum lot size. So they're having some good conversations, but I'm not uh, I'm not optimistic that they're going to actually get passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you've got at the the state GOP the, their actual platform. I mean, it has some language in there that uh, is very targeted at. Um, anti-automobile initiatives so so using money for any kind of bike ped public transit it's just going to be really hard uh they they want to take they want to take the the money that's out there and put it all towards roadway expansion and and that so that those are it's just it's interesting to follow it all but at the local level I, i would say i'm optimistic um but at the state level uh they're, they're making it really hard for good local leaders to do the right things.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I don't How's that compared to, to Missouri and Illinois? I mean, just that whole region, you see the same kind of disconnect between local and state. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's similar. And, and I would say, you know, I think even in like Missouri and Kansas, which I'm probably most familiar with, there's just, uh, there's just even, but I think what's most disappointing just an absence of, discussion about these issues uh, at all. And still a uh, bit of an attitude of, well, the, the approach that we had to economic development 50 years ago was still the right approach today. Uh, and regardless of the fact that there are communities all over the state that have been deeply struggling for, for decades, it mm-hmm. seems to be just kind of like rinse and repeat the same model and not let's yeah. stop and reconsider what we're doing and think maybe there's, maybe there's a different approach that might work for some of these places.
1: Yeah. We did a, we did a comp plan for Parsons, Kansas, um, year and a half or so ago. And, um, you know, going into that, that community, it was very much that it was the, the, the thought was just, we've got to recruit, we got to recruit businesses here and they, they had lost and and we're continuing to lose some population slowly and just changing the narrative in that conversation too, about just getting them to look at the value of their downtown and look at all of the the vacant property that they had in their core um, was, was fun to kind of see that shift. Um, Yeah. But the economic development stuff, you know, kind of go back to what I mentioned earlier of when you, when the economic development folks can see, that they can still add jobs and they can still grow the sales tax base through this incremental small developer model. Um, I've seen more of them get on board more on board with it. So, um, you know, but you gotta have, you gotta have people like Monty or I know you, you work with Abby Kinney, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, you so there's, there's more small develop and there's a lot of small developers around that are doing good stuff. Um, And they can do amazing stuff when they have the support of the city and the economic development uh, groups, you know, behind them. So it's kind of, I guess, I would connect at least in property tax states, the, you know, the interest to raise property tax rates and property taxes in general is not usually there, and the default is always we're going to go add more sales tax to cover (laughs) to cover the gap. But and then the the economic development folks say, well. Uh, from you know, from a company perspective, a lot of these larger, larger employers are looking for mixed-use environments, um, and our, co- our local codes and politics won't let us build that. So it, it kind of bringing that back to helping city leaders and economic development folks and residents understand that density done well is a win-win for keeping property taxes down, for growing a local economy. Uh, that's kind of where we try to steer things. Yeah. And, and are, you know, are seeing some success, but it, it takes a lot of education and intentional, um, nuanced conversations with the different people to, to help them all understand how it, how it can be done without, um, you know, and still fit within their, their concerns, you know?
0: Yeah. And it just seems like, and, we have such a lack of uh, trust in many ways uh, across Mm -hmm. uh, communities and everything else. And that's, uh, that's really the frustration. You know, if you're in um, a a place uh, that is a very strong democratically controlled, they don't want to hear from people from the Republican side. If you're in a strong Republican area, they don't want to hear people from the democratic side and bridging that divide right now seems harder than it's ever been. But uh, I think when, you can take it to to an extent of what you're talking about where you can boil it down to specific uh issues and then just kind of really work at it over like you said over over it may not happen right away, but over a period of time if you keep talking about things that matter to people to their daily lives to their pocketbook, then eventually you can have some success yeah. with that conversation
1: yeah yeah it's it's why I've loved strong towns for so long is it's it's not right or left or north or south or anything like that it's just It's reasonable stuff that most people can, um, can understand and get behind. And I I just, as much as we can, we try to bring it back to how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for this and keep it affordable and start there? And whether it's housing or cost of living for residents, or if it's the cost of, uh, building a building or owning or leasing a building from a business perspective, just how are we going to pay for it? And being able to show <clears throat> how how big that gap is right now, um, that's that's where we start. And you can you can you can't get everybody, but you can get a a bigger group of people in a community to come come together around that conversation. And then underneath that, or expanded from that, you get into land use and growth management and infrastructure and parking, economic development incentives, all all of those all of those kind of things. But at the broadest level, bring it back to how, how are we going to afford, uh, how we're going to afford and, and pay for things. Yeah.
0: So, Kevin, one tangential thing I just wanted to ask about, um, I'm always curious about with people like yourself and, and I did something similar for a long time. You, uh, you, you run a business, you, you have this, you know, full fledged <laughs> consulting business that you are trying to feed with work and keep people, you know, employed and yep. payroll and all that. But you also, um, you have opinions that you share with the world on a regular basis. You have a podcast called Go Cultivate. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, this weekly newsletter and and other things that you send out. That's sort of like a blog, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most companies don't do that. Uh, most companies kind of like, here's the work we do, and we stay away from the opinion side of thing. How what's that like for you guys? And do you think that that do you think that that's a model that other people could do?
1: I certainly hope so. Um, we have said from the very beginning, uh, I mean, I I was working for a large architecture engineering firm, had a great job working nationally, got to see and work and, you know, with a lot of great people and a lot of great communities. Uh, but at the end of the day, I I saw something broken with, uh, how our places were developing and, and what it's going to mean for this country and ultimately my kids. Um, and that, that's why we do what we do um but you know the the education part of it is so huge because we we just we can't do more of what we're really passionate about without more people understanding that it's needed. And so <clears throat> as a small firm, we um we don't have the resources to go run around and visit 300 cities and you know and, and all that. So we've we've just focused on talking and speaking about our philosophy and sharing resources and sharing stories uh, and letting the people who that resonates with us find us. And, uh, you know, it was slow, it was slow growth in the beginning, but now it's really the last couple of years uh, we've had more folks coming to us in Texas and outside. Um, you know, I mentioned Parsons, Kansas. We um, we've got a new project we're getting ready to start in, uh, Gillette, Wyoming. Uh, I'm talking with some folks in, uh, Colorado, uh, where we've done some stuff in the past and are going to be doing some new work. Uh, so there's, there are more people that, that want that, you know, they, the strong towns message resonates with them. The incremental development, uh, message resonates the new urbanist approach. Uh, but just as a, as a planning engineering firm that wants to help communities put those things into practice. I mean, that's our, that's our thing. Um, fiscal sustainability kind of is the, the root of everything that we do and the, the communities that want that, whether it could be an engineer that, that believes in this stuff and and wants, wants to talk with a PE that's willing to sign a, a road design that has, or a street design, I should say that has 10 foot lanes. Uh, we're there for you. If, if you want to do a, a more, uh, strong towns type of comp plan that looks at, at maximizing the places that you have they're um, they're finding us too. So, and then, you know, the, the podcast that we do, it, it really started as kind of a, uh, just a fun side project that Jordan Clark at the time wanted to do. He, he came to me and said, Hey, I, I want to start a podcast. We talk about all these things internally. Uh, why don't we talk about it on a podcast and see what happens and we did and and it's blown up for us so uh we continue to do it we get good feedback on it there have been times we've just been too busy to kind of keep so so we you'll you'll see we have uh, we have times where we're consistent with episodes and then not um we have all kinds of ideas of of things that we want to write about and if there's something that I think we just totally suck at, <laughs> we, we don't share, uh, we don't share the results of our own work enough. Um, we, we're just so busy doing the work and doing the education stuff that when it comes back to like, well, you know, do you, do you have any stuff on your website that highlights your projects or we do? We
0: just don't, <laughs> don't have, have it on there.
1: <laughs> uh, it's hard to do we, we do present on it. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we do present on it at places, but, but I would love to get to a place where we can write about it and have more kind of internal podcast discussions, just talking about our lessons learned and, uh, and the work that we're doing with some of our, some of our clients. Yeah, I think it's, but yeah, it's, it, it's worked for, it's a model that's worked for us. It took time, uh, to kind of stick through it, but now it's, um, now it's working really well. Yeah. I
0: think especially in your model where you do a lot of work, you know, with city governments and all to have retrospectives of, you know, it's been five years since we did this thing, 10 years, whatever it is. And you can kind of see, you know, how things have evolved. Um, You know, I, I know that line of work that you do is not for everybody. Uh, It's a challenge, you know, putting yourself out there is always uh, interesting, but there's, there's a bit of a law of attraction sort of thing to it where, you know, just like you said, the people who are are more aligned with how you think are probably going to be attracted to you and want to work with you. And, those who mm-hmm. probably do other kinds of work that you really don't even want to do anyway, uh, aren't going to call.
1: Yeah. Both for marketing and recruiting, um, you know, for our staff, we, <clears throat> that's, I, I would like to be able to expand the engineering work that we do. Uh, cause I, I, if I had a dollar for, uh, every time that, that I've gotten an email from a, an engineer that is, at a, at a bigger firm saying, you know, I, have learned about strong towns. I've started to read about this stuff. I, I, I'm having this philosophical problem of, uh, you know, knowing that I'm coming to work every day, designing things that are not, are not uh, best for our places. Um, You know, that, that's, that's really cool to have those kind of conversations and, and have more people, more engineers, especially thinking about that. But, but yeah, on the marketing side as well, um, you know, I'll say this: like, well, when we interview for comp plans, one one of the things I I can say and is always going to be kind of a, a guiding thing for for me leading our firm is you know we have no interest in designing the big strodes or thoroughfare expansions or anything that's expanding our infrastructure. Um, if you know if and so many of the uh the firms that we go against or competing against what plant with planning work do have that, right. They have the big engineering arm that depends on that. And so we're, we're focused on making the communities better and and maximizing what they have. And usually that means right sizing and downsizing infrastructure as opposed to expanding it. So that's a real clear kind of differentiator for us, both on engineering and and planning work. So, you know, that, that's all the advice I would say starting a, starting a, a business or a company is just be very specific about who you are and what you want to do and just have confidence that there's people out there that, that want, that want what you're selling and stick with it long enough to make it to, to allow it to happen. Cause when you're pushing new ideas, it, it takes a while for people to get um, comfortable spending their limited money to, uh, to do something new. Yeah,
0: no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> So have you heard about this thing called Kevinism?
1: You know, I saw you post something about it the other day and I I didn't have a chance to read the whole, the whole thing so enlighten me. You need to
0: you need to google it. I, I had uh a coworker <laughs> tip me off to it as well, but apparently uh, I think this is more of a German thing, but it's, it's the also name ever. other Europeans where like the name Kevin has become sort of an insult uh in, oh, in Germany and other places, so
1: I'll have, to, I'll have to go look at. Yeah, it up. I think
0: we need to take offense at that somehow, but
1: I I do. I I think we're uh I, I've never met a Kevin I didn't exactly. like. Exactly. I so. mean,
0: come on. How could you not like him? But
1: Yeah. Well, I, I know we've gone back and forth a little bit on the whole Gen X thing. I I, I think we're the best generation out there too, so well, Of course. Uh <laughs> But yeah, no, I'll uh, I'll go check it out. I, I definitely uh, if Kevin's are bad, I certainly want to know it's why a, it's a
0: terrifying <laughs> rabbit hole to go down when you uh, get on, get on the internet. <laughs> so watch out. Uh, so Kevin, I do like to uh, end this podcast with um, uh, just mentioning that this is the messy city podcast. So I like to ask my guests to think about a place, talk about a place that you know, that might meet that, uh, that ideal of something that's a little more, you know, something more bottom up and organic. Is there a a neighborhood, a, a city, a town that you think of when, when I mentioned that kind of messy city phrase that really resonates most with you?
1: Um, well, I, I have to say it's, I mean, a couple of places that Monty is working just because we, we work so closely with him. Um, and, you know, I, I have so many conversations with Monty about just the, the work he's got to do with councils to, to get them to understand and appreciate the the value of the incremental approach. Um yeah. Man, I, I I from the outside I really um I really applaud kind of what you guys are doing in Kansas City. Hmm. Um, you know, I think there's some great stuff there. I I have not had a chance in a couple of years to really dig back into South Bend. But that nationally I would probably say South Bend is one that I'm really um uh intrigued by just with starting with um with the staff and and what they did several years ago to bring money and incremental development in, <clears throat> and then you know Mike Keane getting involved, and and how that's a, that's of all that I think South Bend is probably a, a really good place to to study. I um one of one of my guys lives over in Shreveport, um, Tim Wright. He's he's been featured on Strong Towns. Um, <clears throat> him and a couple others started Reform Shreveport a, a few years ago. Shreveport's another really interesting place. So, but yeah, I'd, I'd probably say the, the communities Monty's working in here in, in the Dallas area, Duncanville, um, DeSoto, South Dallas, um, but South Bend on a national level is um, doing some pretty transformative things from, a, from an incremental development standpoint.
0: Fantastic. Well, we'll uh, end it there, Kevin. Uh, great to talk to you again, and uh, we'll have to do this again at yeah. a future date.
1: That's good. I started losing my voice All right. Right here at the end. So no, I, uh, I appreciate it.
0: Perfect timing. Then.
1: And, uh, <laughs> go, uh, go. So if, if you're listening to this, Kevin's wearing a Kansas city chiefs shirt and, uh, you know, so go Cowboys.
0: We're we're having the NFL draft here. So, uh, it's, it's a big <laughs> deal for Kansas city and it's nice to win super bowls. So
1: I, and I, I are now, now we're rambling a little bit, but I, I don't know, Kevin, if you know, I, I was born in St. Louis. So, I have uh, a lot of friends and family still up in St. Louis, Kansas City, Chicago. That that neck of the woods. So I I'm still passionate and somewhat loyal to uh some of the uh some of the sports uh yeah, St. Louis the sports has had teams a, up there. They had a
0: tortured football team history.
1: Yeah. I I remember my dad taking me to Cardinals games uh football and baseball at the time, but um, interesting. It's been interesting just to follow just how that whole area, how it's changed over, changed over time. But Kansas city, Kansas city is one of those places, both sides, Kansas and Missouri. I've I, I levels love Kansas city. So I was, it was kind of cool when you, I heard you were moving back there and kind of plugging back, plugging back in. So hopefully I'll get up there and visit and see what you guys are up you to. You should
0: do it. Got a place to stay anytime you want to come visit. So. All right, man. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. Good to talk to you.